Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. So our big ideas from 1 Peter is elect exiles, those two words. That's how Peter addresses his congregation, and that's who we are, chosen, selected, picked out. It speaks to God's care and concern for us. Also, exiles, foreigners, strangers, temporary residents in a land that's not our home. And that's not just in general a fallen world, although that's true, but it's also in a non-Christian culture. And ours is different than Peter's congregation. We would call them pre-Christian. The gospel had not yet been spread. Uh, Jesus had only been dead for 30 years. I would say the United States, and it's not, it's not me, guys that study this, would say we're post-Christian. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But the, either way, we're living as, as exiles. Again, as these temporary residents in a world that's not our home. And the, the, the general principle, how do we do that? We abstain from sinful desires, those impulses that we have to live independent of God. And then we live such a good life, and that phrase, good life, is really speaking about following Jesus. Peter uses that phrase to talk about what we would call the Christian life, following Jesus, loving God, loving other people, bearing fruit, live such a good life among our neighbors that they will see, and that's another really important word. It's different from the other words translated see in the New Testament. It means to observe for a long period of time. They would see our good deeds and turn and glorify the Father in heaven. So the idea is you're living here among other people, many of whom are not believers. That's what Peter is saying to his congregation. And they're gonna see, they're gonna observe your life over five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever it is. They're gonna see the fruit that comes from following Jesus, living living under his rule and his reign. And for some of them, not for all, but for some of them, they're gonna see that fruit and it's gonna cause them to turn towards God. And then we look specifically at a couple of relationships that may be tricky if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you live under a pagan government. That was the Roman Empire was a pagan government. The the emperor, his name was Nero, he thought he was at least semi-divine. And what Peter says is you need to submit, voluntarily yield to or obey that pagan government. And you do that not because the government's great, but because of your fear of God, your deep reverence and respect for God. And there are limitations on that submission. If to obey the emperor would mean disobeying Jesus, then you disobey the emperor and you pay the consequences. So that's this idea of submission to the government. And then he says to slaves who have become Christians, y'all, you still need to submit to your master, even if they're crooked. Remember we looked at that word, uh, that means it's where we get the word scoliosis from, bent. And you may have a bent master who treats you unfairly or unjustly. And Peter says, you submit to them anyway. Again, not because they're great, but because of your fear, your deep reverence for God. Again, same limitations. If to obey your master would cause you to disobey Jesus, then you disobey your master and you face the consequences. One of the pictures that we've been using is from Matthew 13, the parable of the yeast that works through a whole bunch of dough. So last time I filled this thing up with flour, then I realized that was dumb. There was no reason to because you can't see the flour anyway. So this this is 30 pounds of air, but it could be 30 pounds of flour. It's not 30 pounds of air, but it would hold 30 pounds of flour. And this is a thing of yeast. It's about two thirds of a cup. So that little bit of yeast works through that much flour. You're the thing on top. You're the yeast. I'm the yeast. Only a little bit of us 
over time works through a whole bunch of other things. So that's the picture I want you to have in your mind as we're working through this next section today and as we move forward with 1 Peter. It's a powerful picture of the kingdom at work through the church. The rule and reign of Jesus, that's what the kingdom of God is, through his people over time has a profound impact on a society. It may, it's going to take time. It's not in a week, it's not in a month, and honestly, it's not in a year. But over the course of years, people will see. They will observe the fruit in your life. And that will cause not all of them, but some of them to turn towards Jesus. The kingdom has an impact as we live our lives here in this, not just fallen, but post-Christian society under the lordship of Jesus. So we're gonna look at the last set of relationships today. It's wives and husbands, and there's multiple landmines in this section that I'm just going to tiptoe through. So I would say um, we're gonna focus mostly not on the exact words, but what's underneath them, which is Peter addressing these Christian wives and Christian husbands as exiles. He's saying, here's how your marriage is gonna look different than every other marriage in your community. If you want a fuller treatment of marriage, I would encourage you to read Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. And uh, we, did a, we, we did Ephesians about a year and a half ago, October 31st, 2021. That's the sermon. It's on our website and on Spotify. Those are the two places I know to look. It's in both of those places. And you can listen to it. That's a fuller treatment of the way husbands and wives treat, should treat one another. What we're gonna look at today is 100% true, but it's a bit of a subset of that larger teaching in Ephesians 5, and we don't have time to get into that larger teaching. So again, everything we're about to read is true, and I want you listening not just to the husband-wife piece, but underneath it, this is what it looks like to be a husband as an exile, or a wife as an exile, okay? Wives in the same way, so in the same way that slaves submit to their masters or that we all submit to the government, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that, any of, so that if any of your husbands don't believe the word, so they're not Christians, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, your beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You're Sarah's daughters if you do what's right and don't give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So again, Peter is speaking in all of these commands we would call counter-cultural. So there, there were no split homes along religious lines. The wife followed the religion of her husband. So if the husband became a Christian and the wife became a Christian, if the husband followed Zeus or Apollo or Artemis or whoever, the wife did the same. Occasionally, husbands would let their wives kind of have kind of like, like a side God, but it couldn't impact him in this, in his, the God that he was following. So what Peter is saying to these wives who've become Christians, who have non-believing husbands, is a radical statement. He's saying to them, submit, which is what, that's the same phrase that we've already said, it's the same word, same verb, 
So voluntarily yield to and obey your non-Christian husband, but recognize that you're doing that with limitations. If to follow your husband would cause you to disobey Jesus, then you disobey your husband. He talks about not being intimidated by your husband. If he's trying to kind of bully you into giving up your relationship with Jesus, you don't do that, which is a radical statement. Again, women followed their husbands when it came to matters of faith and religion. And Peter is saying, you don't have to do that. You need to submit. You need to voluntarily yield, but not if it causes you to disobey Jesus. And so if your husband's trying to pull you away from Jesus, you can resist at that point. It's the same reason. It's not based on how awesome your husband is. It's not based on how he treats you. It's not based on his character. Your submission is rooted in your relationship with the Lord. Your fear of him, he says, in reverence, that's the word for fear. Your deep respect for God, that's the basis of submission, just like it was slaves to masters and Christians to the government. We don't submit because the authorities above us have great character or because they're believers or because they treat us well. We submit because of our fear of God, which that's both our motivation. And again, then that provides kind of the boundaries around that. If to follow another person would cause us to not follow Jesus, then We have to say no to that person. And the aim, it's the same. It's to win. Your husbands are not believers and they're they're gonna see your, your behavior, your good conduct. It's that same word that we saw earlier in chapter two. They're gonna see your virtue. They're gonna see the fruit of what it is for you to follow Jesus. They're gonna see the work of the Holy Spirit in and through your life and it will cause some of them to become Christians. They'll be one to Jesus, not because of your words, We don't, you don't, that over time can maybe be seen as badgering if the wives are continually, you know, giving their husbands the four spiritual laws. And Peter said, you don't need to do that. They're gonna, they live with you and they're gonna see the change in your behavior. They're gonna see what Jesus has done in you and through you. And for some of them, that will be, that'll be the, that'll be what convinces them that Jesus is real and that they should follow him also. It's that what Peter is saying to these wives is an exact parallel to what he says to slaves and what he says to the church as a whole in regard to the government. It's the same thing. We submit means the same thing, same reason, same limitations, same ultimate aim to impact those who are watching us, living among us who don't know Jesus. And then he goes one step further and he speaks not just to to wives, but he speaks to women. He's speaking particularly to women who are wealthy. So there's some wealthy women in his congregation. And he's saying, listen, in your circles, people wear fancy clothes and they wear fancy jewelry and they get their hair done in a fancy way. Y'all don't need to do any of that. In the kingdom, beauty is from the inside out, not from the outside in. That's another countercultural statement. As an exile, you wealthy women, your, your dress, the way you present yourself, it's gonna look different than some of the other wealthy women that you live among. If you want the flip side of that command, the positive, not the don'ts, but the do's, it's 1 Timothy 2.9, where Paul says, women, you should dress modestly, in decency and with propriety. And those words mean exactly what you think they mean. He's speaking about dressing appropriately, 100%, appropriate for the situation, but not dressing extravagantly and not dressing seductively. And those two things tended to go hand in hand in this culture. To dress extravagantly 
and seductively were, were they, those were sisters. And so both Peter and Paul are saying, don't, don't do that. People who couldn't afford those clothes, they, may have had their, they had other things that maybe would tempt them, but for people who were wealthy, that was a temptation. Use their wealth, buy expensive clothes, buy expensive jewelry, spend a lot of money on fancy hairdos. And that was, again, both a, a sign of their wealth and it could be a sign of their sexuality as well. And both Peter and Paul are saying, don't do that. Now, for me, I'm certainly not gonna get into how tight is too tight and how short is too short and how deep of a V is too deep. But I would encourage y'all, women, to think about that and talk about it among, don't include me, y'all talk about it among (laughs) yourselves. There's something real there. And I would just say, take that for what it is in terms of the way you present yourself, recognizing your beauty comes from inside out, even though everything in our culture would tell you it comes from the outside in. And I, I don't um, imagine to know the pressure that you feel, but I would just encourage you in that and encourage you to, to, to prayerfully consider what that would look like in your own life, to say, I wanna cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit. That's where my beauty comes from. It comes from those ideas that a quiet spirit is one that's peaceful and tranquil, that's not rebellious and not, argumentative and a, a gentle spirit is one that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily seek vengeance, that trusts the Lord to make things right even if it's treated wrongly. And, and the example that Peter gives is Sarah. He says he, she called Abraham her Lord or her master. That's in Genesis 18. That's an, and, and just like we wanna be, you know, we talk about being sons of Abraham, we wanna be daughters of Sarah as well. And Peter says it, it, it submit, submission is one of, the, one of the virtues or one of the ways that that is, is lived out. And remember, Abraham, like he was great, but he wasn't perfect. Twice he had his wife lie for him, which got her like in relationship if God had not protected her with other men. So it's not even, again, based on the character necessarily of your husband. It's based on your deep reverence for, for the Lord. So that's what he says to, to women. Don't, don't be intimidated. Don't let your husband pull you away from Jesus. But as much as you can, voluntarily yield to him out of your deep respect for God so that over time he'll see the fruit in your life and turn to Jesus. And then particularly those of you who have the means to wear anything other than simple kind of clothes, just be, be aware. Dress decently with propriety, modestly, not extravagantly, and not seductively. And then another countercultural statement, Peter addresses husbands. Husbands aren't addressed. Husbands get to do what they want. But he says to husbands, you need to be considerate of your wives as you live with them. That word considerate is actually according to knowledge. That's a literal translation, and it's a great one. Live with your wives according to the knowledge of who she is. For us, that may seem like a bit of a 101. Well, you know, we wanna know the person that we're living with, but that's, that wasn't necessarily the case in Peter's day. Again, this would have been, this would have set the Christian husbands apart from non-Christian husbands, that they actually took time to know their wives as a person. Many wives were secluded to, or sequestered to certain areas of the house. They lived very hidden, cloistered lives. 
And Peter is saying, you need to get to know her and adjust your life accordingly. And to me, that's super practical. If your wife loves the beach, you should probably go there every now and again. Like just that simple. Do you know what what your wife likes and desires and wants? Again, that sounds a bit 101 to us, but that was a radical statement in Peter's day to address a husband and say, treat your, consider what your wife actually wants with the way that you're living. Treat her with the proper respect or honor her. It says as the weaker spouse, and that's talking about physical strength, that's it. Not, not intelligence, not moral strength, not who can drive better, this is just physical strength. And there, there is a woman who is stronger than a man, but in general, men are stronger than women. And Peter is saying to the guys, don't use that against them. Do not physically intimidate your wife. Don't do that. You treat them respectfully and honorably, recognizing, yes, they're physically they're weaker. Before God, they're just the same, which is, again, another radical statement. Women were not seen as equal to men in general. And Peter is saying, everything you're going to inherit from the Father, your wife is going to inherit from the Father as well. There is no inequality as we stand before God. You may be stronger than her, but you're not better than her. And if you treat her, if you don't treat her with consideration and respect, it's actually going to negatively impact your relationship with God. He's not gonna listen to you. Your prayers are going to be hindered. Again, it's a, that's a not normal way of thinking in Peter's day. My relationship with, with whatever God I'm following, that's this transactional thing that I'm doing over here, and that's not necessarily impacting the way I'm treating other people and vice versa. And Peter is saying, no, your relationship with God is not purely spiritual. It has implications in the way you're treating other people, and the way you're treating other people has implications on your relationship with the Lord. And so you need to keep those things in mind. So those are all, again, yes, it's, it's, it's commands for us as husbands and wives, but I think the lens that it's being communicated through and that I want us to see through is he's speaking to them saying, here's what's gonna look different for you. As an exile, as a foreigner living in a world that is not your home, wives, this is what that looks like. It looks like you as a Christian Yes, submitting to your husband, but not being intimidated if he's trying to push you away from Jesus. Living your life in such a way that over time it will cause him to turn towards Jesus. If you have wealth, not using that to dress extravagantly or seductively, recognizing your beauty comes from within. It's your conduct. Husbands, as a a man living in exile, a follower of Jesus, your relationship with your wife's gonna look different. You're gonna consider her when you make decisions, what she likes, what she wants, what she desires. You're gonna treat her with, with, with respect. You're not gonna intimidate her physically. You're not gonna bully her. You're gonna recognize that before the Lord, y'all are on equal ground. Also knowing that if you don't treat her accordingly, if you don't treat her with consideration, it can hinder your relationship with the Lord. This is what I want us thinking about as we wrap up. The, again, it's, it's the idea of exiles to me, which goes beyond husbands and wives. It goes beyond slaves and masters and even the way we relate to the government. In all of our primary roles, I want us to begin to see ourselves as exiles, which I think is tricky for us in general. It's especially tricky in the Bible Belt. Let me give you a little bit of context. It's very difficult to know populations 
in ancient times, they didn't count the way we count. Stats were not scientific the way they are for us. So best guess, the Roman Empire, when Peter wrote his letter in 60 AD, had 60 million people. Maybe there were 50,000 Christians. Most conservative Christian scholars would say there's somewhere between maybe 10 to 15, but we'll bump it to 50 just in case. If you just look at that ratio of Christian to total population, you're talking about one in a thousand. So you run into a thousand people, you meet one fellow believer. The church at this point is so, so small. For some of you, you can go back generations in your family. My parents were Christians and my grandparents were Christians and my great-grandparents were Christians and there's not, Christianity is in its first generation. It's 30 years old. Maybe we're at generation 1.5. Most of the empire has never even heard the name of Jesus. The gospel's only been spreading for 30 years. That's it. The number of people in this room, that's the number of Christians in your city. Churches are in homes and they're a dozen or two dozen people. It's such a small movement at this point. It's powerful, but it's small. It's just, it's a little bit of yeast and really just a little bit. One out of a thousand. And what Peter is saying is, here's how you guys live as one out of a thousand. Here's how you live as a group of 12 or 25 in your town or your village. Here's what that looks like for you. Over time, it will make a difference. Right now, this is what it looks like, abstaining from sinful desires and living a good life. And over time, people will see your good deeds. 300 years after 1 Peter was written. How about this? 32 million Christians in the Roman Empire. From 50,000, probably from 10,000, to 32 million. 300 years is a long time. But it's not that long. It's amazing. There are other factors at play. People are willing to die for their faith. Christians are more, that they, they display, there's acts of mercy that Christians are, in general, that kind of the idea, nobody understood germs, and so if a plague breaks out, everybody runs away and the Christians run towards. That's one of the primary ways that Christianity grew. Was there how Christians responded to suffering? There's other pieces. The Holy Spirit's obviously working miraculously. There's, there, there are multiple threads that kind of we come together to say 50,000 to 32 million. But, but, but a primary one is regular people like us, abstaining from sinful desires and living such good lives among our neighbors over a period of time that they see, they observe the fruit of following Jesus and say, that's better than what I've got. And I want that. It's amazing what the, the, the leavening impact of the kingdom. And I want us all recognizing that. One in a thousand. That would be like in the state of Georgia if there was 11,000 Christians. That would be the number. That's what they started with. Think how far you, there's 60,000 people in Marietta. Just 11,000 in our whole state. That's, that's, that's what we're talking about when First Peter is being written. And within three centuries, over half the empire is believers. I think it was, was it 313, 318, whenever Constantine declared Christianity the 
the official religion of the empire. What scholars say is that wasn't courageous. That was just a recognition of reality. So many people were already following Jesus, he just kind of went along with the crowd. It's amazing the way the gospel spreads and penetrates in a society. Now, for Peter's society, they were what we would call pre-Christian. The gospel, if you think about a bell curve, they're way over on the whatever side that is when it's beginning, let my left. The gospel hasn't been spread. Again, it's 30 years old. We're probably more on the other side of that bell curve. People would call us post-Christian. That's not my label, that's one that People study this would say Gallup, that research organization in 1937, first time they did a survey to say how many people belong, not attend, how many people belong to a church, 73%. The numbers stayed just about there for 70 years. Right around 70, sometimes it dipped a little bit, sometimes it went up a little bit. In the year 2000, it started plummeting. In 2021, that number was 47%. We're, we're losing ground in terms of the overall population. 47% of the people in our country would now say, I belong to a church. And you know that to belong to a church or say I'm a member there does not necessarily mean I'm following Jesus. It just means maybe I've got a place to get married or get buried. We're, we're not in the same spot that Peter's guys were, but there are some similarities What does it look like for us to live as leaven, not in a pre-Christian, but in a post-Christian society? A place where it's not that people haven't heard about Jesus, they probably already have some impressions of who he is, and they certainly have impressions about who we are, what the Bible says, what the church stands for. What does it look like for us to live as yeast in that place? Many of you are in small groups, and this is what I'd love for you to do. You don't have to do what I say, but I would love for you this week, whatever your normal program is, push pause for one week and work through that slide up on the screen. If you're not in a small group, I'd encourage you to talk it through with your, whoever loves you and love God, whoever those people are that you talk to about heart-level things. What does it look like for you and for me in my primary, your primary roles to live as an exile? Verse 16, chapter two says, uh, don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil, but live as God's slaves. So that's a principle. All right, I do have freedom, but I wanna make sure that I'm using that in such a way that I'm fully submitted to God, which may mean a restriction of my freedom in some ways, which is one of the things Peter's saying. Submission, it's voluntary. Do that. What would it look like for me, for you to, to live in such a way that people you know, who, who see our lives, observe us over a period of time, they see fruit. Say, I'm, I'm interested in the one that you're serving and the one that you're following. To do that out of deep reverence and respect for God, not necessarily because the, 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 if it's submission, the authorities you're submitting to are Christian or even treat you well, or some other, if there's some other whatever that, the other side of that relationship is, you're not necessarily doing it based on what's happening over there. You're living the way you're living out of deep respect for the Lord, out of fear of God. So marrieds and singles, what would that look like for you? Potentially, if you're married, one of the things in our society is divorce is pretty easy to do now. And so maybe as Christians, we say, we're not gonna do that. There may be times where it's kind of the, it's the only way forward 
But in general, we're, 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 gonna, we're gonna be really slow to pull that ripcord. We're not gonna put our personal happiness as the barometer for success of our marriage. Maybe that's what it would look like for us. If you're single, I, I, I wouldn't even know how to begin. It's been so long since I've gone on a, on a date. I don't know what that looks like anymore for you, but I imagine there's lots of pressure around what dating looks like now and what does it look like for you to date as an exile. Parents, that's a big, the, the activity culture around children is suffocating. I would say it's insane, and I mean that literally. It is, it's crazy. I'm grateful that ours are a bit older and we don't, aren't living in that. What does it look like for you to live as an exile? Our oldest was born in 99 and our youngest in 2009. Two different centuries, and really was two different centuries in, in the way their experience, particularly in middle school and high, in elementary school and middle school, from our oldest to our youngest, radically different. And the main difference is it's, it's phones. It's cell phones and, the, and then the dominance of social media. Our oldest didn't necessarily have all that in elementary school and middle school that our youngest does. And for those of you who, like, that's all your kids are gonna know, have mercy on your soul. I mean, that's a big, that's to parent, like nobody parented you through that. Nobody, nobody did. You might've had three-way calling. <laughs> but that's it. And we gotta, like, you need people talking with you about that stuff. What does that look like for you to parent as an exile, employers, employees? What does that look like? I would say quiet quitting. That's not, a, that's not okay as a Christian. If your company's not treating you well, you still, I would say, as a believer, should give your best or just straight up leave. As an employer, what does it look like to treat the people who are reporting to you as brothers and sisters, not as thing one and thing two that are interchangeable and whose, whose existence is just there to prop you up or move you forward, help you meet your quota or your deadline? But to recognize these are people. These are brothers and sisters created in the image of God. They have hopes, dreams. He's got plans and purposes for them. We've talked before, all of us, by any standard, historical or global, we're wealthy. What does it look like? What would Peter say to us? about our wealth and how we, how we use that. He says to the wealthy women in his congregations, don't dress extravagantly or seductively. What would he say to us? Not just to women, to men as well. I don't give you all those answers. I don't know those answers. I don't know the roles that you're playing in different stages of life and that's gonna look different. And that's why I wanna challenge you and encourage you this week, dive in. You can't, you can't do it all, it's too much. Pick one. Let's go ahead and do that. Let's, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. If, if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes and let's, let's ask the Lord two things. One, ask him this so you can be encouraged. God, where am I, where am I living like an exile right now? And where am I doing okay? And there's somewhere. And see what he says. And maybe something up on the screen, it may be a different role. And then just thank him, God, thank you. And maybe pray something like this. God, I pray that, you, no, no glory to me, I, my prayer is that the people who I'm living among would observe the fruit in that area of my life over time and it would cause them to turn towards you. Plain and simple. No credit for me. Just people turning towards you. 
if you're willing, ask this question. God, would you show me one area of my life where I'm not living as an exile, where I'm being conformed to the patterns of this world? God, and that's no joke. The world is subtle and strong. It is very easy to be conformed into its patterns. It takes a lot of diligence and intentionality not to. So God, show me where. Where am I not living as an exile? And if you're willing to, God, I, I confess that. I acknowledge that. I pray you'd forgive me for that. And I pray that you would give me grace to live as an exile in that area. I don't even know what to do. Would you show me? Would you show me? And then give me the courage to obey. I need your mercy in that area of my life. God, I pray for every one of us that we would live as exiles in this world that has fallen in this society that in so many ways has, they're just kind of walking past you. So many of them would say, I've tried that and I'm out. It's a world that you desperately love. I pray that we would live here as yeast, that our behaviors over time would point people to you, that people would see the joy and the peace, the fruit that comes from following you. And they would say, I, I want that. If you're willing, you can just maybe open your, put your hands palm up in your lap. I'm gonna pray a prayer of blessing from number six as we leave this morning. It's kind of an extended version of that. God, I pray that you would bless the kids and the students and the adults in this room, that you would confer upon each one of them an abundant and effective life. I pray, God, that you would keep each one, that you would guard, watch over, and watch out for I pray that you would turn your face towards everybody in this room, that everybody would know your love, your goodness, your holiness, your righteousness, your joy, your peace. God, I pray that you would be gracious to every kid and student and adult sitting in here today, that you would give each one out of your abundance the things that they need in their life. I pray that you would lift up your face, turn towards each one, that they would see your acceptance of them and your favor resting upon them. And God, I pray that you would give them peace, wholeness, harmony, and well-being in every area of their life, in every dimension of their person. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 